Hello, healthcare providers, and welcome to episode five of episode Transforming five. Rounds. You know what that means? No. <laughs> that wasn't a good lead. Best friends forever. It also means that. Um, but it also means that that's our last episode. Uh, episode five. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, it is the last episode of the series, but super exciting. Tell me, tell me, um, I can't even wait. Super exciting and mysterious. It is very possible that Transforming Rounds might be coming back in a rejigged format. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep your fingers crossed. Happy healthcare providers. And if we do come back, um, like Lazarus, we will be back <laughs> on this feed to let you know about it um, so that you can keep on listening to us and be best friends forever. What an excellent cliffhanger to start the episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The episode, which is um, on the topic of reproductive health care. Yeah, we're, we're ending on a really light note. Mm-hmm. Reproductive Super health breezy. And parenting and, mm-hmm. and fertility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I am actually super excited about this episode. Yeah, I think it's just going to be full. Like, yeah. full Rich. of the feels, my friends. Absolutely. Um, because who who doesn't immediately get full of feelings when you say the word parenting or mm-hmm. having children, mm-hmm. um, reproductive health even. And, um, you know, <clears throat> this episode has some particular sensitivities because of mm-hmm. the ways in which access to reproductive health care remains still really uh, segregated um, within the trans community. Absolutely. Do you want to share more about that, Kai Chen? <laughs> <laughs> I always want to share. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, when we were talking about um, conceptualizing this episode mm. and researching this episode, we came up again and again, and again um, against the issue that most of the resources and services and research um, we were able to find and also most of the uh, folks we know in person yeah. who are trans and have had kids um, tended to be white, tended to be uh, mm-hmm. assigned female at birth or transmasculine, yep. leaving out uh, trans people of color and yep. especially trans women and trans mm-hmm. feminine folks. Yeah, it was pretty stark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think it would be remiss to, to just launch into the episode without saying a little bit ourselves about... Um, you know, why that is, right? And of course yeah. it has to do with transmisogyny yep. and racism and, and just how stark those things remain. Um, we yeah. we had talked about sharing a little bit of our personal experiences here and you're going to get more of <laughs> yeah, I share later. a whole bunch of them. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, as a trans woman of color myself, I know, you know, it, it often still, still feels really impossible um, yeah. to have children. It, it feels like a foreclosed opportunity. Um you know, uh, when I started my transition, um, <coughs> you know, the the option of, of banking sperm just wasn't wasn't around. I didn't have mm-hmm. the money to do that. It wasn't funded in the province I was in, and uh, so yeah, you know, it's possible that I'm not able to do that. And um, I had a, a, an experience of my own around trying to conceive with a friend, which didn't work out. And yeah, I mean, so, saying all that already just brings up this like wave of emotion, right? And of course. there's going to be emotion throughout the episode. And uh, yeah, I'm just yeah. wanting to recognize that. Yeah. 
And your story is so important, and we're going to hear from lots of people in their their journeys to becoming parents or not becoming parents, and some of the struggles and barriers and successes they've experienced. And um, I guess it's a good moment to just like let people know, particularly like community who is listening, that this is um, this is an episode that we all cried through. <laughs> there is there is a lot of feelings that came up, a lot of joy too, a lot of so happy feelings. Joy. Yeah, happy tears as well um, as sad ones. But um, I think it's poignant to just note that it, that's something that touches a lot of us um, in a really deep way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So get ready to cry. <laughs> we are going into uh, this very packed and rich episode. Yeah. Um, we're going to go first into a story from a community member and then into an amazing roundtable by three trans femme parents. Cannot wait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the story that I'm going to share with you is um, with my first pregnancy. So that was about five years ago and a bit. And uh, I was laboring at home with a midwife and a doula. And my husband and my my good friend was there. And we, did, we realized after about, like, I don't know, it had been about 20 hours and it was time to go to the hospital. So... Um, at this point, I wasn't really able to, like, put a lot of thought into, uh, what that meant as a trans person going into the hospital. I think all I could really focus on was that I was going to be having a baby soon and that everything hurt. So we got to the hospital. We were walking, uh, and so I just have this memory of walking into the hospital and past, like, a desk and there being a lot of people um, on the other side of the desk, I'm guessing nurses, and I'm guessing maybe the reason why there was so many of them was that there was a shift change happening. And I just remember uh, looking up ahead and seeing my midwife just walking ahead of me, and like I could just feel that they were holding that space for me and just really alert to any threats that could be in the hospital. And there was just something about that moment where I just, I knew I was going to be okay because I knew that they were, they were looking after, they were looking after me and they were, yeah, just aware that there could be threats and, um, that they were going to look out for me. And so, yeah, so as I was walking by the desk with all the people behind it, there was just, I don't know, they weren't looking at me with a lot of compassion from what I remember, and I remember I was having a really intense contraction, and my midwife looked back and was like, do you need to stop? And I was like, fuck no. And I kept walking right through that contraction because there was no way I was going to stop and just have a contraction in front of these really un uh, unfriendly-looking nurses. But long story short, because this is just a little clip, uh, my, my midwife... Um, and a nurse who worked at the hospital, who was an ally, did some major work at that hospital for the next two days to go around and make sure that everybody was uh, aware of um, that I was trans, that I used he, him pronouns, and they really did their work to make it a safe space for me. So, um, yeah, that's my story. Midwifery is radical work, and it made a huge difference for me. That's all. 
So maybe we could just start with folks sharing your names and where you live and a little bit about uh, the kids you're raising. I'm Nora. I'm in Montreal. And uh, I say that I'm a PhD student, but I feel like over the past uh, almost two years of having a child, most of my time has been geared towards parenting. Um, So, yeah, that's me. I have a 22-month-old. Uh, my name is Jenna. Um, I live in between Montreal and Ottawa. I live on a small organic farm where I work as a farmer um, when I'm not with my children. I have two kids. Um, my oldest kid is six, and my younger kid is like three and a half. Uh, I'm Kate. Um, I live in Ottawa. I have a six and a half year old with my wife, and um, and uh, yeah. To think of myself primarily as a full-time parent, even though I have a, I have a career and all that. But yeah, parenting kind of takes over everything else. Amazing! Thanks so much. So we brought this panel together because we noticed that most of the resources and services and research that we were finding uh, for the topic of this episode, reproductive health, tended to be focused on trans men or folks assigned female at birth. So we just wanted to ask, you know, what has it been like accessing services and healthcare related to parenting as trans women or trans femmes, and um, have there been services available? Um, I'll jump in. I want to start like uh, at the beginning of that process of <clears throat> healthcare as a parent, which was you know dealing with fertility issues. Um, it's one of the. It's almost. It's kind of difficult to talk about. Because there's, you know, it's a huge class divide, but, the, the, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times there's a, uh, you know, a lot of the times the story, story will start with, oh, you, you know, freezing sperm. And it's something that doesn't get really talked about a lot, but in, in many ways it becomes a very essential component in, in the people that um, have, uh, that do have children after post-transition because, you know, it's a very... It's not, it's not essential, but it's a, often a huge and, and, you know, not seldom discussed aspect of it. Because that, that's, that's the road we went, and that was, you know, extremely difficult and uh, not, a lot, you know, not a lot of fun because there's not a lot of those services are, you know, accessible to trans people and, or affordable in any way. Like, I, before I transitioned, I, I, I went into debt and got credit, my first credit cards and went into debt to free sperm. Um, not that I wanted to be a parent at the time, but just to, like, uh, uh, my, my strategy was that this would somehow appease my parents that I thought of this. <laughs> um, and it was just kind of like that sort of guilt. In, in the end, it ended up working out great because, you know, now I have a child uh, from that, a sperm, but um, it, was, it, was a long, it was a long kind of draining road to slog through the, the whole fertility system, um, which, which is, you know not really set up well to deal with uh, queer parents, let alone a queer couple that is also has a trans person involved. Um, but that, that, that's, you know, that, that's the specifics of, my, of you know, our, our story here. If anyone else wants to jump in. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that rings pretty true to me as well. I, I also stored my sperm um, kind of prior to transitioning. Um, and, one of the interesting things for me, I was at, at the time I was in the what's called the program at the Montreal General Hospital, the, the like the program for trans people, and, and at the time it was the only way to to get a 
publicly funded reassignment surgery here in Quebec was to go through the program um, under the this, this psychiatrist. And when I met the psychiatrist and a bunch of the, the, um, the other therapists and, and um, psychologues, uh, psychologists, um, they actually denied me hormone therapy because they didn't think I was serious about transitioning because I wanted to store my sperm. They, like, he specifically said it's, it was like me trying to hold on to my maleness, and that was a sign I wasn't ready to transition because I wasn't prepared to give up the, the idea of having... Oh, that is some infuriating gatekeeper bullshit. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? It, was, it just blows me away now to go back and think about that. Luckily, I was able to, like, the rules of laws had changed almost about that same moment, and I left that program and then and found better, better health care for myself that allowed me to both transition and store my sperm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think I was just like, I don't care. I don't need to save my sperm. I'm just like let's get going I like uh, in terms of transitioning and uh, I think it was vaguely presented with like the fact that if I didn't store sperm now I wouldn't have an opportunity to do that at a later point etc etc and um, uh, yeah it just seemed so vague and distant to me as an option I think Um, and not that I went through something kind of as abusive as what you did, Jenna, in terms of um, kind of presenting or, or denying you access, essentially, on that on that grounds. But um, but I feel like it was kind of just like this unspoken uh, reality that it wasn't an option for me if I wanted to transition. Um, I will say that I, when I was 20, um, I was a sperm donor for some friends. Um, uh, for a couple, one of whom is trans also. And um, I think that opened up an idea of different possibilities for me for being able to have kids in the future. And so when my partner and I did want to get pregnant, um, we ended up going that route and just finding a friend who was ready and willing to be our donor. So I didn't have to navigate the world of like fertility clinics and whatnot. Um but I had to navigate a whole other world of, of, yeah, what it looks like to have a sperm donor. And a lot of that was guided by my own experience from earlier on. Hey, thank you so much to each of you for sharing these stories. Um, uh, can I just toss one more thing out? It's very regional specific here. Uh, but if anyone follows the news <clears throat> in, uh, in Ottawa, there yeah. is a, um, there's a whole disgrace the uh, uh, fertility doctor, Dr. Barwin, I'm in Barwin, and uh, there's all these, this, all these class action lawsuits afoot, and it was basically revealed that, um, you know, this was this, this was the guy, he was known as, uh, for, for decades, like the trans doctor in Ottawa, the, the, the doctor that would serve trans uh, people, uh, and he was the go-to, and everyone went to see him, and eventually came out that um, some of the people, he, he was a fertility doctor, some of the people that he inseminated in the past were you know, not the sperm, didn't receive the sperm that they had thought they were getting, and some of them are suspect that they received his sperm, etc. So there's all this kerfuffle with this, you know, the, the go-to trans doctor uh, from who was kind of ubiquitous in the 90s and the aughts mm-hmm. for anyone who's trans in Ottawa. And so everyone 
store, any, anyone who was able to stored sperm through him. And shortly after our fertility experience, when we, when we were finally successful, all this came out. And so all of the sperm that people had stored had basically become uh, deemed uh, invalid by the local fertility clinic. So just if you can imagine that, all of a sudden, you all the best laid efforts of a lot of people <laughs> put in to store sperm, transition, and then they found out that basically, uh, the, you know, the, the, the local fertility services no longer trust anything that he had stored. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just wanted to tie that up there. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, me too. So we're lucky we got it. We got in just under the wire. Like literally, or else they would have. We would have been out of options. So mm-hmm. we would have had to switch our our, our, our game plan at least. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what it's um, what it's like to be hearing these stories uh, from each other. What uh, thoughts are coming up, or questions, or or feelings? What's it like to be astrally together? I mean, it's funny. I think I, I was just trying to think of like who are the other. Um, like trans moms that I know and there's a handful who are older generations. I thought of Ayanna Miracle who passed three years ago but who was like a, I think she was even a great grandmother um, and uh, but the two of you are some of the only of, of my generation that I could think of um, who I, I've actually I, I, met I can, or I can, known of. I can count all the trans women who have had kids post-transition on my two, on two hands. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one hand. <laughs> um, yeah, and when I when I count with both hands, it's you know that's spanning most of North America, like people I've met in like yeah. Los Angeles and DC and <laughs> Toronto, and it's a bit of a tangent, maybe, but I know that um, this podcast is partly oriented towards like healthcare providers and researchers and and whatnot, and people who might consider themselves like allied with trans people and so I thought it might be useful to share but also give kind of a sense of the the reality I think uh, around or the misconceptions or just the absence of the idea that we can have kids um I, I was like a research assistant on a national a giant national research project on uh, women living with HIV and sexual and reproductive health. And they made big efforts to include trans women, which was awesome and kind of groundbreaking. And as I was conducting interviews with trans women specifically, um, I realized that entire section about reproductive health that cis women would be asked, all those questions were default um, kind of removed from the survey. And it just made me be like, huh, like, what? <laughs> what is this? Like, so just in terms of like the, 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 the more cutting edge or the more inclusive kind of work that is being done and knowledge that is being built still continues to kind of exclude our, our existence, our reality, and even more so for and trans women living with HIV, where it's just like, I can't imagine a medical, like, healthcare provider being like, oh, yeah, this is totally an option for you, like banking sperm or otherwise having a baby, you know? So I think just, like, then coming into this space with the two of you is really special to actually be like, okay, um, 
Like I don't, I haven't had this conversation with other people before. Yeah, that that uh, totally makes me think of like of, of the process of actually using the sperm. Like it was, it seems so skewed towards like like so many things that just hetero couples don't have to deal with. Like even the fact that they made us like even like when we were ready to use the sperm, they made us both take STI tests to make sure like none of us had it, had something because it might get transferred, but like anybody making a baby at home is going to have the same risks with a life partner. It's just kind of assumed. And now I'm trying to, I'm trying to use my sperm with another couple at another clinic and the other clinic wants nothing to do with the sperm. They want, they want virals and hepatitis from the time I banked the sperm which wasn't the rules when I banked the sperm, so they weren't done. And we're wow. just, we, I'm like, I don't understand why this is so difficult. I've given virals for, you know, every year since, and it's just not enough for them. So that, that was similar with the Ottawa Clinic in this terms. They've, they just set up all these extra rules, and they're like, well, the way they explained it to us was, we, this, is, this, this, this was new territory to them, and they were unsure of liabilities. Yeah. And they didn't want to put themselves. They, they didn't want to risk anything. And they were. They said they basically. They said they were legally scared to go into um, this this new territory. And and I was just like, well, well, thanks for being spineless about it. Um, but yeah, like in, in a sense, I can see that. Like, yeah, sure, it's new, but you know, it's it's not exactly. Um, you know, it it, it, it it was really disappointing that like, they're like they're like, oh yes, we are actually scared about this. Uh, to proceed there, uh, and just to <clears throat> just to slide back from like you know to our personal experiences here, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've done a lot of I've, there's a lot of work with uh, trans youth in my day, and yeah, it's 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 often something that is swept away. The option of parenting, the future of parenting, is often swept away because like you think back to a lot of times of the beginning of transition and things are very anxious things are very hectic there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emotion there's a lot of stress and difficulty involved in this in in all the choices involved there often thinking ahead to oh storing sperm parenting is not really high on the radar like most people you know you hear a lot of the narratives of this is something i have to do or else i'm going to die or i'm going to kill myself and it's just like okay here's this fatalistic we have to survive we have to get through we have to proceed with this and the option's not even there. And I think, like, and, I, and never at one point in, in my process or with a lot of processes of people I've been working with, has any health provider, you know, off, offered the option of, okay, do, would you like to store sperm? This is, you know, if you do, this is how it works. This is the possibilities. Um, if you decide a decade from now or two decades from now, this is how it could be utilized. Here's the technology. And again, there's another aspect of that, which is, really the the, the 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 money aspect that it does take a lot of money to to store that and make that make that choice and oftentimes you're coming from a, a lot of people come from a point uh, where if, if even if they you know consider those options and had that knowledge presented to them there's no uh there's no way to deal with the, the, you know uh the class divide there there's no system set up to uh help make it affordable um, for, you know, trans people, you know, in, in, whatever, in whatever state they're at or in whatever state of crisis they're at internally that 
to make it an actual viable option. Uh-huh. I'm wondering if folks have, um, uh, okay, first of all, questions for each other <laughs> um, about how you did certain things or how you got through certain challenges. And also if there's anything um, that you or that you're really appreciating or, um, or words of encouragement that you'd like to share with each other, things like that. Also, gifts that you've like that your transness has given to your family and to your kids, um, and like specifically around those words of encouragement for each other, but also for like young trans folks, particularly young trans women who are potentially interested in having families. Like, I don't know, words of of hope or encouragement in that sense too. I've I decided about like when. When I was pregnant with my my first child, about well, I wasn't pregnant when we were pregnant with our first child um, uh, seven years ago. I was approached by like a, a post media to do an article about it, and it was kind of the first time I was really like in the media about my transition and about reproductive health afterwards. But I decided to go ahead to do this this. Um, uh, this newspaper article, I've been um, on Radio Canada here in, in Quebec um, telling a similar story. There's also a docu- I also participated in a documentary called Transparents. And I, I feel like I do all of this to try and reach the young trans people. I, I didn't meet another trans person until I was 31 years old. Um, I transitioned shortly afterwards. And it was just like I felt like I grew up with this void of role models of of examples of of really anything, and so I feel like I've really tried to put myself out there um, to really try and share my story in as many media as I can, just so the the young trans people know that this is possible. Like it's transition alone, I didn't uh, me as a as a young adult didn't know how to do it, how to go about it if it could be successful. Um, I had all these fears around it. And then now I'm a, I have two small kids. It's what I've always wanted. I'm so happy here with, with my kids. Um, and it worked, and everything worked. And, yeah, it's great. I think just to share, like, a ripple effect of your own work um, and and how much you've been in the public, Jenna, like, I knew that breastfeeding was a vague option, but then seeing you in uh, in the documentary that you were in really had a huge impact on me and my own decision to to be able to induce lactation. And I'm a more low key, less perhaps in the media sharing my own story person, but I made decisions, for example, to to pump. Um, as a part of the induction process publicly and would occasionally have especially younger trans women come up to me and be like, I had no idea that you could breastfeed. Like, what the hell? And we're just, like, blown away. Um, And that was really special for me to be able to to share that with other people and and to have that on that experience in my own life and and yeah you are one of the one of the few people that I knew of that had had done that in real life that it was actually a thing so that makes me 
makes me feel so good. Yeah, and when, with that aspect, like I like I went to to the Newman Clinic, um, the lactation clinic in Toronto, to see Dr. Newman, and the people I talked to there hadn't met another trans woman that breastfed, that nursed the, their children, and I couldn't find anybody here either. It was it blew me away. Yeah, I I, I only knew one other person who's ever uh, uh, trans woman who's ever breastfed. <clears throat> they were from D- they were from DC. Right. Yeah, it was it was you know it, like it was uh, it was very intense for them, but um, it was uh, yeah it was also an amazing experience and it was something they really wanted to strive for. In yeah, the end, they, in the end, they had to stop because it affected uh, her other, her partner's uh, other um, lactation. But they had to switch down to one person doing it. But it was really amazing to see them uh, proceed and make it happen. Yeah, I found it. I found it really, really challenging as well. It was uh, quite a bit of work. And uh, in the end, I, I, I didn't nurse for very long because of, uh, mostly because it, it was a lot of work and my partner's milk supply was was so abundant, it seemed almost not worth it after, after mm. a point in time. Yeah, for me too, it was absolutely challenging and, um, and relatively short-lived. But I'm so thankful that I knew it was an option and that I was able to do it. Yeah, for me, it was just um, I, I did not, I didn't do that, but I, I always just wanted to highlight the, the sheer uh, joy of just being a parent. You know, I uh, there's nothing I can think I, I, w- I would have wanted more in life than to have a uh, have a kid. And I think through the haze of you know my own anxiety or depression or whatever, oftentimes it felt like an impossibility. Um, certainly, growing up, I didn't know any other. I didn't know any trans people that had children after um, after transition, and and they, you know now that now those numbers are growing, and now and it's it's so heartening to see you know just to send out that message of love and positivity and look, there's, there's you can still uh, build this type of a family. You can build any type of family you want, and being trans isn't a barrier to having you know the joy of children. And the pains of children, and the, you know, and the stress of children, but all the lovely parts of having children that all come together. Yeah, I'm hopeful too that from that, like, there'll be an outward push too. Like, I'm thinking of a friend who really wants to adopt, for example, and she's not in a relationship, and um, I don't know how much that's an option for her. Like, I really don't. I don't know any trans women who have adopted, like, post transition. Um, but I am hopeful that, like, kind of in these conversations and in that growth of, of of possibilities for us, for trans women to have futures with children, that all the yeah. different ways that it can be done. Um, adoption, I mean, adoption uh, has often been at the forefront of um, progressive uh, outreach. Um, I know, I know, for, I know for certain the uh, the Ottawa adoption agencies uh, were very. Um, we're very good at uh, outreach towards uh, the queer and trans communities. So, there, you know, there's definitely uh, a lot of possibility for, uh, for for building families like that, too, and uh, more so than there used to be. I think this might be a good moment to turn our thoughts toward closing the roundtable. So I wonder mm-hmm. if, um, <clears throat> you know, just to wrap up, if each of you wanted to um, share something you're coming away from this conversation with a thought or a feeling or a memory, something like that. 
I've always just filled with joy when I get to talk to other um, parents who have been through uh, relatable struggles of transition and uh, have come through and uh, and built a family after that. It's it's uh, it's a difficult story, and it's it's not super common yet, but it's it's there and it's ours, and um, it's it's amazing to be able to uh, relate to other people on that level because you know you meet a lot of other people in your day to day. You meet a lot of other parents, and you know, and sometimes you, not everyone really understands that um, the extra little tweak of difficulty uh, in being a, um, a transparent uh, can, can involve. I'm just really happy to have the opportunity to connect with both of you. And um, I'm really going to try, Jenna, to come to your farm because it's been something I've wanted to do for a long time. So it would be really nice to see you. Yeah, I feel like likewise. Like I haven't talked to Nora since um, since you had your kid. I, um, and it's like this is actually the first time I've ever talked to other trans women who've had kids post-transition. It's uh, it's pretty great. Uh a big step, and uh, yeah, of course, you guys are both welcome here anytime. Um, well, thank you. Well, I think that is that, friends. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, you know, you can't see us, but we're all like sobbing here yeah. in the studio. <laughs> like, I, I, I've been openly crying for the past 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And so are the rest of you, okay? Yeah. No, I am. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so uh, much. Yeah, this is a really rich and powerful, important educational but like that that's like the least of it you know um conversation to have uh, it's really i think one of the most powerful that i've heard as um yeah. a part of this podcast we've heard some For really sure. powerful affecting conversations and the three of you have been really generous um mm-hmm. with your time and your sharing so Thank you also for that. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having us. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I never saw myself having kids. But then again, I never saw much for myself. Not in those days, anyway. I knew my partner wanted kids, though, and I've never liked to close doors. Before starting hormone therapy, I worked with a fertility clinic to save up for a potential future. One that I couldn't really imagine. My therapist at the time had suggested I reach out to this particular clinic, and I was glad he did. I wouldn't have known otherwise. Mostly, they offered preservation services to oncology patients who'd be undergoing treatments that might make them infertile. But they'd started offering those services to trans people, too. I didn't know how much to save. Though I'd heard of trans women going off of hormones and their counts going back up, my doctor assured me it wasn't something I should count on. Time passed and things started clicking into place. I was happy, finally. I began to see a future for myself. More of life's opportunities opened up for me. My partner and I decided it was time to try for kids. When I look back and reflect on what made working with the clinic such a positive experience, I think it's that all the staff there communicated well, and they'd done their homework. They didn't make assumptions, and if something wasn't clear, they asked questions. They avoided any exclusionary language that might presume a family arrangement that wasn't true for us. I don't remember a time where I was made to feel uncomfortable. I remember those early mornings in the waiting room. There are pictures of babies everywhere, sent in by families that had worked at the clinic. I remember telling my partner that we'd have twins, 
She didn't believe me. It was a stressful process. I won't lie. Months of IUI treatments, signs and symptoms we took to mean success, and yet, no luck. Our doctor called to say we had enough saved up for one more try. After that, she'd recommend we switch to IVF, and that would be a whole other thing. Was it fair to ask that of my partner? And yet, going off hormones for months without knowing if anything might come of it seemed impossible. I'd come so far and it sounded like my worst nightmare. I'd finally gotten a surgical date and it was fast approaching. Could I put that off? I knew I couldn't. My partner woke me early one morning. I could hear it in her voice. Just by the way, she said my name. We were pregnant. We went in for a blood test to confirm and following that, an ultrasound. There it is, our doctor announced as the beating of a child's heart came on over the speaker. Just one, right? My partner asked. That's what I'm checking right now. The room fell silent for a minute, two, and then, sure enough, there it was, the second heartbeat. So, hello everyone and welcome to the panel segment of this episode of Transforming Rounds. Normally we do a cross-country panel, but actually today all of our panelists just happen to be from the city of Toronto. Um, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves real quick right now. So maybe um, we can just start with uh, Giselle and I can get you to say your name, preferred pronoun and the type of uh, reproductive care work that you do. Sure. So my name is Giselle Johnston. I am a full spectrum doula. My pronouns are they, them. Thank you so much. And maybe we'll just go to Jen next. Hi, I'm Jen Goldberg, and I'm a registered midwife in Toronto at Community Midwives of Toronto and the Toronto Birth Centre and St. Michael's Hospital. And I'm also a full-time grad student uh, doing my master's in public health. And I'm interested in research um, around sexual and reproductive equity for queer people, trans people, non-binary people, and two-spirit people. Fantastic. Thank you, Jen. And last but certainly not least, Carrie. So my name is Carrie Schramm, and I'm a family doctor. I've also completed a Master's of Public Health. So congrats, Jen. You're almost done. Um, and I have, uh, I've done additional training. So I have a small family practice. I do a small maternity care practice and deliver at Mount Sinai. Um, but the majority of my practice right now is at Hannum Fertility Center. Um, and at, at Hannum, I run a well persons conception program, uh, which largely serves um, LGBTQ and single women, uh, helping them achieve their families uh, outside of IVF. Fantastic. Thank you. So what I'm getting from this is that all of you are very, very, very busy people. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> this is just great um, to have a doula, a midwife and a physician on a panel together is actually really rare in my admittedly, admittedly limited experience. It also sounds maybe like the beginning of a joke, you know, like um, a midwife, a doula and a doctor walk into a podcast recording <laughs> and we will see what the punchline is. So um, my first question question for the three of you is 
how you got into this work of providing reproductive health care for trans folks. Um, and, you know, we would love to hear a specific moment, maybe, that you realized mm. you needed to be doing this kind of work specifically. And um, maybe we'll just go in reverse order. Carrie, um, when did you first realize that you wanted to be doing reproductive health care? Um, oh, you, you, that seems like such an easy question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a complicated question. So um, I always enjoyed reproductive care during uh, during medical school, mm-hmm. uh, during residency. I did elective training in it, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so I was I enjoyed the medicine. I enjoyed the science. And early on in my fertility practice, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Amy Burns. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know her. Um, Maybe for our runs- listeners, yeah. Yeah, so she's um, she's a family physician as well. We did residency at the same time. Um, and she runs an LGBTQ fellowship uh, at a Sherburne Health Centre here in Toronto. Mm. And so as part of her training, she wanted to spend time with me in fertility. Um, but her and I were both very new at the time. So her and I actually um, spent considerable time together um, seeing patients and kind of sharing our lens of me coming at it from a, you know, kind of science fertility standpoint and her coming at it from an LGBTQ standpoint and meeting patients and reviewing patients and just kind of working collaboratively. And I think it was really her who was the inspiration to say um, the fertility community can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was been really fortunate with Dr. Hannum that in 2015, he said, um, what do you want to do? If there's any project, what do you want to do? What could it be? Um, and this was it, was to make a loan intervention fertility practice oh, that wow. truly served people. Yeah. He really gave me uh, a green light opportunity as the clinic was expanding to say, what do you want to build and create? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I said this, I want to make things, something, that, something inclusive, um, respectful of all people. Mm-hmm. And um, I think as a family doctor with the public health at that point, I was finishing up my public health master's. And so I think kind of coming into it from family medicine and public health, I was very well situated uh, to create it. So, of course, I didn't do it in, a, in isolation. I did it with uh, heavy amounts of community involvement mm-hmm. um, from Amy Burns, Rachel Epstein, um, and other sort of forerunners uh, in the field. So a real story of mentorship there and lineage. I Huge like that. story I of mentorship. Like yes, thank you for articulating that so much better than that. <laughs> than I did. Oh, I don't know about better, but it is my job. I'm the host. Um, Jen, what about you? So my my story started 25 years ago when I actually serendipitously was at a birth and saw a baby be born. And I just knew that that's how I wanted to spend the vast majority of my time. Mm-hmm. And I have done so for 25 years. Um, and, you know, I, I am a queer person. Um, I'm cisgender. Um, and so I have, you know, seen how queer people in the healthcare system have been treated over and over again, mm-hmm. and trans people and non-binary people and indigenous people who identify as LGBTQ. And so because of my exposure to health inequities and just seeing sort of like on the ground day to day um how how often um queer and trans people experience prejudice and bias in the healthcare mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. um it just it was just always really up close and near to me um, especially as a queer person working in a heteronormative healthcare system generally um and so i think you know 
when you put yourself out there a little bit, kind of like you open your heart and you open your mind and then all of a sudden people come to you. And that's what started happening to me. Just more people started seeking out care, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the queer midwife. The queer and midwife. The mm-hmm. queer midwife. And, you know, there's a lot of us in Toronto. I am not the only one. And that is mm-hmm. a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we need more. Um but I think that that just, you know, helped me see that we're doing well, but we can do better. And so I've kind of like moved a little bit away from clinical practice um, towards research to try and just kind of take a different look at the system. Um, I like to solve problems or at least try, and I like to understand how systems work. And I feel like I'm taking my clinical experience for many years and using it in a different way from outside the system um, to try and, you know, turn up some evidence to show how we're, how midwives in Ontario are doing well and where we might be able to do better. Fantastic. Thank you, Jen. And what about you, Giselle? So how did I start to, to do this work? Uh, I think for me, it's really important to, uh, to work within various communities that I may identify in. So um, for me, like, it's really important to work with people of color, black folks, um, queer and trans folks. And I'm really lucky that I think my practice is maybe made up of 50% of queer and trans folks. And um, if not people of color um, or people in um, interracial relationships. Um, And I think that's really powerful because, um, yes, we do live in a big city, but, you know, it's really special watching people um, who are, you know, from the current trans community who are able to have families and have really beautiful families and have community around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been really important for me to have my practice expand in a way that I can serve those populations, because I know that um, while there are other doulas who are queer identified, I just know there's a huge deficit in terms of folks who are, you know, um, gender variant. Um, And I find that, you know, I can add at least a different perspective to that and understanding and compassion around how hard it is to navigate the system as someone who identifies as... um, as non-conforming or queer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for doing this important work. Um, And I think something you just said, Giselle, is um, a good jumping off point for our, for my next question, which is, you know, you mentioned that, of course, queer and trans people, and, um, you know, particularly we're thinking about trans people and gender nonconforming people in this podcast, can have beautiful families, but there is a sense or a stereotype out there that uh, we are not able to or we're unlikely to be able to have children, to be fertile. Um, and I'm wondering if any of you can comment on this. Where, do, where does this sense that trans people can't have children or be parents come from, and what truth, if any, is there in it? Oh, well, like I'm raising my hand high in the air. Can I go first? Of course. <laughs> because I have, I have a data point here for you. Um, so a study from 2015, and this is Greta Bauer's work um, and others, um, shows that almost 24% of trans people in Ontario are parents. Tw- wow. Can you say so that again one more time for our listeners? Sure. 24% of trans people in Ontario are parents. Fantastic. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. So based on that uh, statistic, then the the stereotype is untrue. Yes, yeah, so I would I would jump in and say the stereotype is not only untrue. Um, from my experience in fertility, there is no higher rate um, of infertility among trans or queer folk than they are among anybody else. Okay, now um, I'm going to jump in there just because I think, you know, a question that providers really want to know about is, well, you know, um, so much of the literature uh, talks about hormone therapy, reducing fertility yeah. and um, all of that sort of thing. And it's the first thing that the physician says to you when you want to go on HRT. So I would love to hear more about this. Yeah, so I... I Physicians, I, I do feel for my colleagues, um, and I think that, uh, we are often facing a situation where someone says, what are the risks of this? And because it's really difficult to do randomized control trials and say, okay, no, you get hormone therapy and you get a placebo and let's see what happens to you, because that's completely unethical, right? So mm-hmm. the research we have um, is all retrospective uh, and case-based, and it's not necessarily the most robust research. So um, so trans people who are taking estrogen, so if you are born uh, with testicles and taking estrogen, that absolutely has a negative impact on fertility, which is not always reversible. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So before those folks start estrogen, um, they should be getting counseled that they should consider uh, freezing sperm ahead of time if they think they may ever wish to access uh, their own DNA for the purposes of, of having children later in life. So that should absolutely be counseled. Mm-hmm. Um, when people with ovaries start taking testosterone, there's not really any good research which tells us what's going to happen. So we end up being kind of resort, we have to resort to looking at case studies um, and research which is really less robust. Um, I'm trying to do research right now to show that I actually don't think it has an irreversible negative effect. So mm-hmm. while you're taking testosterone, um, it's actually not great birth control. So you should not rely on it mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. birth control if you don't want to conceive. Um, but while taking it, if you're trying to conceive, it will reduce the chances of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. But many people have stopped testosterone uh, and been able to personally conceive or have eggs produced um, in the context of artificial reproductive technology. Well, this is so important, you know, because of course, uh, you know, I've worked with many parents of trans adolescents and the first thing they will say is, well, what about fertility Um, a lot of the time? And, you know, Giselle, I know you don't uh, work directly with medication or hormone therapy, of course, being a doula, but I wonder if you have anything to add just from, you know, the experiences of the clients you've had and so forth. Well, I know even from just like friends um, who have previously taken testosterone that, you know, they've gone on to have a baby through home insemination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that we should also consider is there are people who have gone on um, hormone therapy who then conceive outside of the medical industry. Which mm-hmm. Absolutely. If, if you know anything about the medical industry and what it's like to um, be trans or on the trans spectrum, you would know why people are um, seeking as many routes um, as possible outside of the medical industry. So when folks are looking at case studies, that's all good and well, but that's only for the folks who are actually coming to doctors um, and reproductive um, doctors to have, you know, to have babies. Um, I'm in some groups in Facebook, and I'm always 
um, really happy to see how many people are there and sharing, you know, their own experiences because people know that the research doesn't reflect so many people. So just having that peer support, I think, is really, really important. It really is. Absolutely, and that's another barrier to research as well, you know, for very understandable reasons due to the history. Um, So I've been trying to do a few very small research projects, and my greatest challenge is recruitment. And I totally get that. Um, People don't necessarily want to expose themselves to an industry, I don't say industry, they don't want to expose themselves to something which has perhaps previously caused them harm Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. the purposes of research. Completely understandable. Some of the case study research, um, which has been done, has not been done in the context of people who are trying to conceive, but done retrospectively um, by people who do deliveries. They mm-hmm. said, you know, of these people who have seen me, so it's also been for midwives, not just physicians, who have done deliveries, um, this percent um, have conceived, you know, uh, at home either with uh, with a partner or with home insemination, or they've con- they, they will actually often say how different people conceived, um, because much of it actually is not within the medical community. If we look at the medical community, you will lose probably a vast majority um, of the people who ultimately uh, have children and families um, wow. in Ontario. Mm-hmm. The medical, we have a very small glimpse of it. My practice really is um, not representative of the wider population. Um, it's those who choose to come to a fertility clinic. And that's a huge, you know, huge step to take. So it's a very small subset that I get to get to work with and see. I hope as time goes on, um, experiences will change and that I will have the privilege of seeing uh, a wider variety of people who feel safe, and who feel recognized, but uh, it's certainly not there now. Well, you know, it's just amazing to hear the three of you talking about the, all of these things with such confidence, because I have to say I've spent so much time with healthcare providers and there is so um, much hesitation and uh, sort of just, I think a lot of misconceptions and, um, you know, honestly, anxiety around um, all of these pieces of research and um, experience uh, that the three of you are talking about. Now, I'm afraid we are already running close to the end of our time. And so I just have a couple questions left for you. And the first is, you know, um, that statistic around 20 or more than 20 percent, I think, right, of trans folks mm-hmm. in Ontario having children. I wonder um, how many of those folks fall into the assigned male at birth category and how many into the assigned female at birth. When we were planning for this episode, we, uh, Jordan and I and the rest of the team did notice that, um, it felt like a lot of the resources uh, we knew of out there were for trans masculine folks or assigned female at birth folks and that were, there were fewer for trans women. I wonder if this uh, you know, resonates with the three of you as, as true or maybe not so true. True, true. And what I really want to speak to here is, you know, you know who's asking the questions mm-hmm. um, and in what context. So, you know, 24% of trans people in Ontario are parents but we also know that, um, you know, all different kinds of bodies can become pregnant and in different ways. And so often we will have people in our care pregnant, however they got there. Mm-hmm. And we need to do a better job inviting people to disclose their sexual and gender identities. Right. Because currently we, we don't know in midwifery and in obstetrics, we, we don't know the percentage of our clients who identify as non-binary, for example, or bisexual, mm-hmm. for example. And it's only since uh, two years ago that our Ontario uh, perinatal record, which is the you know consistent form that we all use in, in midwifery and obstetrics and antenatal care, 
which is used by family doctors too. Mm-hmm. Um, only until two years ago did they start asking uh, for sexual orientation, but it doesn't currently have a spot on the form to ask for gender identity. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually not, we don't, we don't have the data. We actually don't know necessarily what the best way is to ask people and invite disclosure and, and keep track of that and then be able to offer people services and resources and, you know, mm-hmm. safe, inclusive and celebratory care mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we don't know who's in our care necessarily. Right. Yeah, so I've actually, so in, in some of my work with uh, Rachel Epstein and, and others um, to really try to get forms, and I understand forms are a huge challenge to this day, but for my Well Persons Conception program, my forms ask for an individual's name, their preferred name, because it often may not necessarily, um, you know, could be Jennifer and go by Jen. So I want a preferred name. I ask for their gender orientant, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, and I ask for their preferred pronoun. So I'm finally with these form- with my initial intake forms. For people who are willing and feel safe responding, I am able to capture that data. And when people don't respond, I make a mental note of it. And I often come back at a second or a third follow-up and say, oh, I see that this wasn't filled out. Do you feel comfortable disclosing it to me now? Absolutely. And so this is actually a good so note for listeners I actually, I actually out there. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to have to. I feel terrible cutting you off. We are unfortunately at the end of our time. So I'm, I'm, what I might do is ask for each of the three of you to give us just a one-liner. Um, you know, if, you, if there is like, if you had one sentence, just one, um, to tell uh, reproductive health care providers what they needed to know um, about doing better uh, health care for trans and gender diverse folks, what would it be? And we will start, I think, with Giselle again for this one, unless you don't want to be put on the spot. <laughs> no, I'm fine to be put on the spot. I would say hire um, people who can do consultations with you to make your practices a more welcoming place for trans-identified folks. Boom. And, and gender non-conforming folks, because I can tell you I've been to a fertility clinic myself um, in both professional and, and personal um, capacities to sort of, you know, like get a sense of what's out there and it's rough mm. it's really rough people it doesn't matter how nice the nurses are how nice the staff is um, it's such a heavily gendered experience and for me it's really off-putting you know like I spend my life just being like so um, intensely just disgusted by the way people like have no consideration for gender variant folks and um I think there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. So hire people, you know, hire people of color and train your staff. Train Absolutely. them, train them, train them, train them. <laughs> that was more than one sentence, but it was good. Mm-hmm. So we'll let it, we'll, we'll allow it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the next two of you stick to one sentence. Uh, Jen, what about you? Attitudes matter. Mm-hmm. And be careful about making assumptions, reduce assumptions try and be aware of your biases and where they're rooted and coming from. And I guess that's my sentence. Thank you. That was perfect. That was perfect. And Dr. Schramm. I, I think for me, it's asking who people are. I ask how I can help. And I ask, how do you want to make your family? Uh, I just ask. Ask. That is perfect. So hire diverse folks and, um, question assumptions and ask people 
what they need. I love it. I love it. Thank you, the three of you. So thanks so much to the three of you. Thank you. It is wonderful to have you on. And we that wraps up our panel. Okay, I feel out of any episode, this is the episode where we really need the the (laughs) co-host corner. (laughs) I'm really glad that we're here. Yeah. Can I just give you a quick shout out to say thank you for doing that that panel? Usually we do the listeners. Usually we do the panel together, but I was so sick when we were recording the panel. So Kai Cheng mastered that whole thing all by herself. Um. I mean, I don't know what mastered, but I did tell some really amazing jokes. You did. <laughs> <laughs> it was the laughter that we all needed mm. in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, anytime I listen to any of the pieces of this podcast separately, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I'm like sitting in like a puddle of tears right now. I'm just. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about that round table? Yeah. Because I think that everyone who listens to this episode is just going to be blown away. Yeah, that is a conversation that sounds like those folks on the roundtable had never had before and also that I've never heard. And I think that yeah. that's, a, that's a conversation most people have never heard. Yeah, I mean, they talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like what, what that says, right, about um, the isolation of trans folks, trans women in particular, but yeah. I, I would, I would gen- venture to generalize that um, to trans people too, like, um, like all trans people as well. Just let... You know, the, the isolation is huge and the idea out there that we just can't have children or mm-hmm. we shouldn't have children, the looming specter of the forced sterilization of trans folks by the medical establishment yeah. um, is really, really present in our lives. Yeah. What, I mean, like what, what was it that, I, like, I don't know. I'm just trying to digest like what... Like the magic of that of that whole roundtable experience, the like, um, and I think part of it is around what you're what you're talking about in terms of like voices within the context of of um, what it means to try and build a family as a trans person, particularly as a trans woman. Um, uh, and I think that there's also like it's just so clear how powerful it is to hear mm-hmm. people's stories. Yeah, um, to be connected to people with stories that are similar to or to connected to your own. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so I feel so grateful that we have like community folks speaking so frequently in all the episodes, but particularly in this one, it's been so profound. And also grateful for that statistic that one <laughs> out more than one and one in four trans folks on Terry's a parent. Yeah, and you know that data is. I mean. No, no shade to, because we need we, that that data is is timeless no but I, it's uh it's so important but it's also dated like it's it's old and so this has been a reality for some time it, like that data is over 10 years old now mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. um like before there was this sort of hot moment around because i feel like we're in a moment particularly in urban centers across across the country around a lot of visibility around transparenting or maybe, you know, trans mask parent parenting. Right. right. Um, but this was before that wave. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's something there. Absolutely. One in four, one in four Absolutely. trans people parenting. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for our next segment of the episode as well. Yeah. It's going to be an amazing and powerful and what? wise and deeply, deeply just integral um, <laughs> part of this episode 
uh, brought to you uh, by none other than our amazing co-host, Jordan Zainzo. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for offering your personal story to this episode. My pleasure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's jump right in. So I'm Jordan. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast, and I am also a parent. I'm parent. I'm a parent of uh, two kids: one five-year-old and uh, one baby who is uh, ten and a half months, almost eleven months old. And um, I'll I'll share a little bit more about about this as as this segment goes on. But one of those babies I carried, and one of those babies my partner carried. I think that I started thinking about becoming a parent when I was a teenager. Um, that was when I felt like, um, that's when I felt like I had this feeling that I was going to have kids in my life when I was when I was older. Um, and then I came out as queer, and then I came out as trans in very quick succession. And um, uh, in this kind of unspoken way, it was sort of assumed that that being a parent was off the table. And so I didn't think about it for years because I also didn't see myself um, living for years. Um, I sort of had a, a future or a, a view of my life that sort of ended, um, like didn't progress into my 30s or, or beyond. And so I, I, it just wasn't on the radar of possibilities. Uh, and then people in my life started to have kids, uh, people that I knew in real life, like queer and trans people, and uh, things started to shift. Um, I did not imagine that I was ever going to be someone who was going to be pregnant. Uh, and that option actually came after a whole sort of um, like a whole long story that I won't get into um, here. Um, but it sort of culminated in this moment where I had a conversation with my mom um, I was sort of in the midst of actively planning to be a parent um, and plans around that were changing and shifting. There was a lot of moving parts um, and I was feeling a little deflated, um, just feeling like, you know, I had looked into all of these different options in terms of how this, this could work um, and uh, things were not, nothing was sort of panning out in those different options and my mom sort of flippantly was like, why don't you get pregnant? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds like a good idea. Um, but I started to think about it earnestly, and I think it was literally a month later that I uh, came off of testosterone. I'd been off and on of hormones uh, for a couple of years. Um, and that I knew that, 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 that had to be the step that had to happen before I could even think about, um, even knowing if, if pregnancy was possible for my body. Um, so, I, yeah, that was my first step. I, I came off of hormones. I spoke to my doctor. I had a succession of, <laughs> of feels, like a lot of feelings. Um, um, there was a sort of cascade of feelings that happened, uh, probably a mixture of one, coming off of hormones, but two, being actively in the process of looking to get pregnant. Um, I just had this one funny moment that I remember where I was like biking down Brock Street um, and um, I smelled something. There was, it was some flower. I couldn't even tell you what it was. And I just started bawling. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right, this is, <laughs> this is the sort of expansive emotionality that I have access to when I'm, <laughs> when I'm not on testosterone. Not that that's true for everybody, but it was definitely something that I noticed for me. So the getting pregnant part 
Um, I did outside of healthcare. I didn't interact with healthcare providers. It was it was um, outside of that context. I mean, I got support from uh, the, my doctor at the time, who was super rad. Um, who actually, I think the only information I got from her was like, wait three months and then start trying. Wait for your wait to start cycling and then start trying, uh, which I did. Um, and everything else happened outside of a medical context. And so I had. Um, somebody that I had, somebody in my life, a friend who was known to me, obviously known to me, uh, but who wasn't very close, who had agreed to be a sperm donor. And um, just knowing what I know from other people's experience, I feel extremely, like, extremely lucky to have found the person that I found. And um, we had a very hilarious ritual where this person would come over um, and would deposit sperm into a Dixie cup um, and I would take a, a empty syringe like we would do he would text me as soon as um, as he was hit he would he was done and we would sort of do like this like secret handoff like I would run into the house and he would run out of the house and I would run upstairs my pants would already be off and like there was a blank syringe in my hand and I just like got it up in there and then they tell you to like hold Hold your legs in the air for 30 minutes. So I would just sit on my bed and think about, and I actually think also in those moments of like sitting like on my bed with my legs up against the wall and like sperm inside me um, were like some of the most hopeful and tenderest moments of the process of like becoming a parent because I like, I feel like I wrote love letters to my like unborn baby in in those moments, just like, all the wishes and all the hopes that I had um, as someone who hadn't yet experienced being a parent. And I look back at them now and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that's really, that's some really hilarious stuff that you were thinking in terms of what you thought parenting was going to be like. But um, there, there, was all, there was just something really beautiful um, and extremely anxious. I'm such an anxious person and that time was so, so filled with anxiety every you know, every time I tried, every moment of pregnancy, really, and I can talk more about that. Um, um, yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of anxiety into parenting as well. But that's a, an important part of my story, and I think important part for lots of people too. As I sort of moved through the different parts of being pregnant and having a baby, the anxiety around the process shifted a lot. I think what happened was is that the, I've always been an anxious person and going through the process of pregnancy and becoming a parent really underlined the ways that that was showing up in my life. And so um, it wasn't that like those things made me anxious, but they highlighted the anxiety in a way that I then was able to understand it and, and um, yeah, grow compassion around it and also skills and tools for dealing with it that come from, I think, a place for me of knowing that, like, my stability and sanity is also, um, like, critical for the health and well-being of my children. <laughs> While I was pregnant, um, I was lucky enough to have midwife support and also be working with a hospital-based team. I'm a type 1 diabetic, and so my pregnancy was highly medicalized. Um, I was at a hospital every week for appointments. There were lots of tests. Um, and it, I think it also did a really great job at desensitizing me to the kind of experiences that I was going to have in in hospital um, as like a pregnant dude. Um, and I have to say that I think that for a lot of people and for myself too, there was a lot of fear around how that might look. Um, 
my experience, probably for a lot of reasons, having to do with access and privilege and um, whatever passability and, and whiteness, um, it was not uh, it was not challenging. And I think it was also a bit of like a fuck you attitude that came with pregnancy, where I was like um, very quick to to just like not give any shits about anyone who wasn't going to be helpful to to me and the fetus that I was carrying, like. I think I was also really lucky to be working with the high-risk pregnancy team at the time that I was uh, because um, because of the moment in trans healthcare in the province, um, they were just really eager to get it right and they were fucking it up all over the place, but they were really eager to get it right and I think that um, made my experience a particular way. Um, so I have I had nurses. Uh, first of all, everyone recognizes me wherever I go, um, and so every time I was in the clinic, like we were just so visible, so visible every time. Um, but then we got all these like um, like people just like jumping over themselves to like figure out how to not be transphobic, um, which was a hilarious dance. Um, but it meant that things were in place. Like the the nurses made a um, a birthing plan with me, so that whoever was going to be on shift at the time, were, they, they were not going to freak out when a pregnant man came in having contractions or, you know, save, like, agitating shit when I was, like, actively laboring. Um, and I feel, uh, even though it didn't, that, that did not actually work, the, because hospital administration is, is a mess, um, the effort was there and I felt like that was important. I am blessed as a parent. Um, my, they... My, my eldest, who is the kid that I carried, um, I've spoken about them on another episode in this podcast. Um, they like have um, like pushed and challenged and like invigorated me in ways that I've like I never thought were possible. Um, and every every single day with them becomes like a, like a deeper sense of myself and I think that that feeling of having your whole world um, change happened um, abruptly and gradually. There's one thing that parents told me in the beginning when I was a new parent and sort of like a deer in headlights and and the thing that for some reason I just remember this one piece even though people were very generous with their comments and advice at the time. and that was that the the days are long, but the years are short. And so, um, in some ways, I feel like how to describe this like ever expanding, like ever expansive, um, like depth of love for another person um, that just keeps getting, yeah, it just keeps getting getting deeper over time. Uh, I think my favorite part about being a parent is like um (laughs) uh oh god there are so many um and I'm in this really fun moment now with my 10 month old because you know he's just starting to like it's the the time where the gears really start turning and like all that learning is happening so quickly and like I just never knew how long I could sit on the floor and look at a plastic cube and be mesmerized because it does so many different things and you can stack it and you can watch it and how it looks in the light and like rediscovering like every single inch of my house and my environment and the world around me through the eyes of somebody who's like literally this is the coolest shit I've never seen anything like this before um is like I don't know I love I love it um 
I also love being a parent because um, I'm so socially anxious and now I just have kids. <laughs> I, can, like, I can just like be with them um, and uh, it gives me it gives me a thing to do <laughs> and an out. This is very this is very not actually in my the depth of, of um, the joy of parenting, but it's it's a very functional <laughs> Yeah, it's a very functional aspect. <laughs> um, I did something early on in my becoming a parent journey that I think set a good precedent for me um, around moving through the process. Um, I decided that I was pregnant the, the minute that I started trying to get pregnant. Um, and so I had already considered myself a pregnant person or a person who was going to become a parent um, when I decided that that was the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and I actually don't know how exactly that relates to, like, um, a good way to move through a whole process, but um, I, what I do know is that um, becoming a parent is, like, maybe, like, one part science and a bajillion parts planning and, like, five bajillion parts magic. Like, there's something about it that can't be rationalized, even though I'm like a, a very, like I need evidence and proof and I need things that I can hold in my hand and touch um, and becoming a parent is nothing like that. Um, and so maybe I guess I would say to to myself, what you're doing well is like, like continually letting go. Um, and I feel very lucky again in that way that to have the children that I do have um, who are both like totally wacky, like, <laughs> you know, wacky, wild creatures. Um, and, um, you know, for someone who's, like, really about logic and boxes and, and um, you know, tangible presence, um, I have two kids who are, like, whew, you know, like, they're just out there. Um, and I would say, like, the whole journey of becoming a parent is kind of like that. Thank you so much, Jordan, for sharing your incredible story with us and also all of your wise thoughts and, yeah, just all the general brilliant amazingness that is you. You stop. No, I won't stop. Uh, also, you're very cool and funny oh, and no. you dress well <laughs> and you're talented. Uh, I will never stop, but um, I'll, but I'll continue after after we wrap the episode. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't like compliments, whatever. Um, I'm gonna get them. Wow. Um, <laughs> so okay, we have credits. We're crediting to today. We are crediting the amazing. Nora, Jenna, and Kate from that tearjerker of a round table. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. To Maya and Elliot for their solo narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, to Carrie, Giselle, and Jen from our provider panel. Totally. Huge um, thank yous to our regular, regularly scheduled team of awesome. We have Sheila Sampath, our producer, and Rob Trevison, our technical producer. And of course, our phenomenal researchers, Jen Dietrich and Catherine Allwright, who also, and thank you to Catherine's mom, who made us some great muffins. Those were fantastic muffins. I have to say, thank you, Catherine's mom. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Catherine's mom. Uh, thanks to Chris Polly also for our amazing music. The Institute for Gender and Health, the CIHR. 
Um, and I have to say big thank yous to my partner, Johanna, and uh, her sister, Taya, for holding it down on the home front and watching babies for this episode and for all the episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know I already thanked you for your story, Jordan, but I'm going to thank you again for co-hosting and just generally for being such a fantastic co-host throughout this Oh, I didn't know we were going to do this, experience. too. <gasps> Sorry. Oh. Yeah, for the research, for being way more organized than I am and on top <laughs> of stuff. Um, Thanks yeah. for making this the best job that I've ever had. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Just a real statement. Well... This has been, yeah, this has been really real. And I'm going to miss co-hosting with you. I know. This has been. Maybe it's not the end. Maybe it's not. Let Maybe us it's not. all live in hope that we can continue on. That's right. Which is Which brings us to, okay, so you listeners out there. Healthcare providers, but also I have come to realize that some of you are not healthcare providers and are just general <laughs> nerds. Um, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Oh, you made it all the way through with us. We couldn't have done it without you. Mm. Thank you for listening and for clicking. Thank you to that one fan who came up to me randomly in Vancouver. And oh my gosh, you didn't said tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm not you. shocked. You're I, famous. I would name you, but um, I don't know if you want me to do that. So thank you, beautiful fan. Thank you for all the beautiful fans. Um, listen, we, we hope you learned. We hope you laughed and cried. Yeah. Um, we hope you uh, share and reblog us also. <laughs> and we hope that you stay in, in touch because... Um, uh, if you stay on the feed, then you'll get updates, uh, updates about where the project is going. So uh, we're going to be out of touch for a little while, but um, uh, hopefully we'll be updating you with some really exciting news coming soon. In the meantime, check out the show notes from this episode uh, for exciting links and also yeah. to uh, links to the projects of um, a lot of our guests. Um, it is goodbye for now, but hopefully not goodbye forever. Mm. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>